You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 81. To the choir master, according to the Gittith of Asaph, Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts, to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with the honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these words. Thank you for all your words. Thank you for the truth behind them. Thank you for being who you are for us, a gracious God, through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the chance to come here and worship together. We pray that you would reward Central for their hospitality and bless them as they begin to start a new school year. We pray that you would fill believers here with your spirit and that you would seek and save the lost. We pray for our multiple teachers at Veritas here, for all the schools in town that are gearing back up. We, we pray for KU and students who are coming back to campus. Pray that you'd be at work um, in this important transition. We pray for believers moving here to be moved by your spirit to get rooted in a faithful church. We pray that you would empower them with courage and compassion to make new friends and share the good news of what Jesus has done for them. Pray for all the campus ministries, that you would direct their steps and direct other steps to them and make connections that would save lives forever. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Remnant Church in Topeka that you would continue to bless their Sunday evening gatherings and knit them together in love and help them as uh, they get ready to launch Sunday morning gatherings. That you would draw people to meet you. We pray for David and Monica. 
uh, our missionaries in Turkey, uh, while they're back for a little while longer in the States, that you would refresh them, bless their time with their families, give them safe travel back. And we pray for the church there in Turkey to be rooted in love and built up as you mature their faith. We pray the same thing for us, God. Transform us into the kind of people who delight in you, in and above all things, who discern your will and delight to do it. Help Casey by your spirit to speak the truth. Help us by your spirit to hear with faith. We want to know you more and we want you to get the glory that you deserve out of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are in Psalms 81. And uh, how we're going to look at Psalms 81 is kind of like a, a tour guide, uh, which just means I'm going to like push, you know, pull you this way, point at something. It might be obvious. It might not be obvious. And then we're going to explain why it's there um, and uh, what we can learn from it. And I'm hoping that as I'm pointing to different places, I'm, man, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit actually points to something in your life. Uh, that the Holy Spirit points to something in your life that maybe is very evident or very obvious to you that he is working with or trying to redeem and restore. And he is standing with a gracious presence, a presence that can bring certainty to you to say, I am the solution here. Or, or maybe it's something kind of obscure. Uh, before... Um, uh, I, I did youth ministry for, for a long time. Uh, and so sometimes people ask, why do you have so many youth ministry stories? And the answer is because I did it for a long time and crazy things happened. And so they just leave a mark on you. And sometimes on property too, uh, they just leave marks. Uh, but one year, actually several years in a row, we, we went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and uh, just to help with service projects, help with churches. And uh, our main jobs is we would mud out basements uh, or first floors. Usually they don't really have a lot of basements. And so just mud would be caked in, sometimes like up to like a, a foot and just dig mud out. We'd clear out sheetrock and we would roof. And uh, to reward all the children for all their laborious work, uh, we did a swamp tour. And it was incredible. I mean, we got on an airboat, uh, we went around too fast on a swamp, and our swamp tour guide, he grew up in and around the swamp, and I mean, it, like, he, like, he would walk around, uh, sometimes literally walk around, but he would like, go, stop, look at something, point at trees, and talk about why they're important, and talk about how you can harvest something from them, and make money. He would point at bugs, and talk about how there are seasons where these look like crickets, would just cover everything, and you could collect their larva and sell it for money. He would point out bugs and say, don't touch that, it will bite you. I mean, over and over, he was pointing out dangers and areas of profit that could be harvested from the swamp. And then obviously he would point out alligators and then ask, do you want to hold it? I'm like, no, man, I don't want to hold that. At one point, he uh, brought us up to, he's like, look at this area. It looks like land, but it's not. It's floating land. And he looked at me and he said, do you want to step on it? I was like, no, I don't want to step on it. Uh, but all the kids were like, yeah, get on it. And I was like, no, I'm not getting on it. I, I've been on land before, and that's not really land. It's made up land, and I don't believe in it. And so finally convinced me to step out of the boat on this floating land, and it was kind of squishy. And then he, he started to drive away, and I panicked out of fear because he told me all the things that could kill me in the swamp, and I'm sure they were waiting for me beneath my feet. And so he, they finally they came back for me. I get back in the boat. But what he did as a tour guide was he took people who were unfamiliar or maybe familiar with something, and he just along the way he stopped and he says, look at this, and then would explain something about it. And so sometimes it's looking at the forest and missing the trees, or sometimes we look at the trees and we miss the forest, but every time we come into the text, the words inspired by God are meant to communicate something to the original audience and meant to communicate to all Christians at all times that we might know God, that we might learn more about ourselves. 
And as I was thinking about um, this tour guide approach to this sermon, I just kind of realized, man, I'm kind of a tour guide on everything I do. Like, I coach soccer. All I do is point and yell. When I preach, I just point and yell. I mean, I'm like, man, I'm in the wrong profession. Psalms 81. It is calling God's people to a joyful festival to celebrate and remember what he had done for them in the past and some of that celebration, what he was doing among them right now. Psalms 81 reminds us that God meets us in the wilderness. The last three Psalms that we've looked at, this theme of the wilderness and God being present and God redeeming is so strong. And it's not just something in in the history of Israel. It's definitely something in the history of Israel that God provided for them in the most unlikely ways after he rescued them from Egypt. But it's telling us something more about this life. It's telling us that This life for us, because we were created to be connected to God, is far more wilderness-like than what we know. And sometimes we feel it. So it tells us that God meets us in the wilderness. It tells us that there's purpose in the wilderness. And it tells us that in the wilderness we'll find something that is sweet and that can revive our soul. And so just like a tour guide, as we look at Psalms 81, I'm going to stop and point something out. Some things will be obvious. Some things might not be as obvious. But the three things I'm going to point out, I'm going to point out some, uh, some nouns. First, we're going to point at the wilderness. Then we're going to point at the rock that's in the wilderness. And then we're going to point at what's in the rock, honey. And putting that all together, this is going to tell us that in the wilderness is a rock. And from that rock flows honey for your soul. And if God never took you into the wilderness, you may never have an appetite for what your soul really, really craves. And so there's purpose and value in the wilderness. And so the first point is the wilderness. And so we are commanded to remember the wilderness to teach us something. And so Asaph is writing this song, looking at the people of Israel, and he's inviting them into this song to start a festival that is looking back to the wilderness to remind of all that God has done. So that there might be present hope for what God can do and will do. And so it's also saying much of this life is far more wilderness-like than maybe it's like anything else. And so when I say wilderness, I know, I know some of you guys are picturing western Kansas. And that's pretty close. But it's worse. It's worse, there's not grass. It's the Flint Hills with sand and and not grass. And anyone who has driven, you know, on I-35, you see that big sign. It says, man, the Flint Hills. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, whoa, what are we getting ourselves into? And then I was like, oh, we've been seeing this for like 100 miles. Like, I don't know. Like, is it announcing McDonald's? I don't know what's going on here. But like when we think about the wilderness, we need to think about a place that actually can't sustain life on its own. It's inhabitable. People don't live out there or don't choose to live out there because the natural resources of the wilderness aren't enough to sustain life. And so when we look at verses 1 through 3, it's this joyful uh, uh, invitation that is inviting people in to a celebration that we're going to unpack in just a minute. But it's saying, remember the wilderness. And it's saying, in the wilderness, it was the wilderness that we learned that our God provides. And so look at verse 1. Listen to all of this introduction. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. And so, so right away, it's like a pump-up jam. Like this is like trying to draw you in. Sing aloud. Shout for joys. It's the kind of music you listen to while you're warming up. This is like ACDC back in black. It doesn't matter when you were born. When that guy, everyone's like, oh man, I just want to play. Even though if you're like me and you're like, they're not going to let me play. I'm just warming up for nothing. But it starts off and it's this invitation where it says, sing aloud to God. He is our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. And then it keeps going, verse 2. 
It says, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre, and the harp. And so all of a sudden, he starts to draw in instruments to draw people's attention. And he starts looking at the, the singers and the tambourine and the, not just the lyre, the sweet lyre and raising the harp. I mean, this is like the, the Psalms equivalent, you know, to, to electric guitar, bass, and the trap set, and the saxophone also. It's like the equivalent to all of that. And so he's inviting everyone in. He's not just inviting to start something. He's inviting everyone in with a certain type of mentality, with a certain type of spirit. He's inviting everyone in to say, this is a joyful occasion for what God has done, and it's meant to build faith for what he can do. Verse 3, we have more instruments. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. And so if you're looking at verse 3, where you see trumpet, like it actually means shofar. And so they just translate that uh, to something that's kind of like a, you know, a, a bugle that would announce the arrival of something. But, but the shofar is like that big ram's horn that's kind of twisted that, you, you know, you might see in movies where like, bah, bah, and everyone's like, man, something just showed up, something happened. And if you don't know what it sounds like, you can actually look on YouTube, just shofar, and there's actually an eight-hour soundtrack of shofar music where it all sounds very, very similar, but it just keeps going and going. And go. while I studied it, I was like, it's only appropriate that I put this in the background. Um, but the, the shofar was used in a lot of different applications. It was used to call the people of God into battle. So when, when, you know, when they fought Jericho, they blew the shafar, several shafars, and the walls came a-tumbling down, if you remember that song. Or it was used to gather the people because a new king was taking the throne. Or it was used right here to start an important celebration that marks something, that teaches something, that draws everyone. It's used to bring attention in. And so the band starts and it settles and the shafar comes out and the big bugle just blows this low, deep, almost mournful sound that draws people into the beginning of something. Like it's a calling. It's a calling for all people to gather around and celebrate something. It's a calling for all people to take time to remember something. It's a calling for God's people to remember his incredible, generous provision and to remember it with raise the song, sing aloud, play the music, to remember it with joy. You know, almost all commentaries where they, they talk about this, they'll say, you know, we can't be for sure, you know, which celebration this is, but then they all land on, like, this is definitely the Feast of Booths. And, and so the Feast of Booths, like, we look at some of the clues. It starts with this, from new moon to full moon. Like, that's a 15-day span which sets off the Feast of Booths. And so the shofar would be blown on the first day uh, of the seventh month at the beginning of the new moon and then 10 days later you would they would celebrate the day of atonement known as Yom Kippur which is the time that the hope the, the, the high priest the only time that he went into the holiest of holies to make a sacrifice for God's people and so the shofar blows sets off 10 days and then during Yom Kippur the holiest of holy goes in to make a sacrifice and then five days later the shofar would blow again and it would mark the beginning of the feast of booths. You know, if you have your Bibles, go to Leviticus 23. It gives a description of what the Feast of Booths is. If you don't have your Bibles, okay, it'll be up on the screen. But the Feast of Booths is described in Leviticus 23. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And so it reads this in verse 39. It says, on the 15th day, so we see that again, of the seventh month, we just talked about that, when you have gathered in the, the pr produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast for seven days. And so the, the, the Feast of Booths is a harvest celebration. It happens in, in the fall when, when, you know, all the harvest has come in and now there's plenty and you celebrate with one another to rejoice that there is food, that there's provision that God has provided. And so this was a time to thank God for all of his provision. It was a time to pray to God that he would continue to provide for the future, that he would bless the crops and he would send rain and we would celebrate again next year that there would be a good rainy season so it's a time to celebrate 
It's a time to remember. It's time to think about God's present goodness. He just came through. But it's also a time to think about his past goodness. And, and so we, most of us aren't super familiar with agriculture because uh, we grow up in cities. But like it shows our limitations. Like you can prepare the soil. You can plant seeds. You can pull weeds to help growth. And now if it's a small enough area, you can aggregate, like you can uh, water the area to help. But if it's a large area, you depend upon the Lord to send rain and to grow it. You depend upon the power that's in the seed that grows the plant. And so it's the Lord that commands the rain. It's the Lord that grows it. And so this is a time to celebrate the recent gracious acts of God to say he has done so much. Look at the other description in Leviticus 23. It goes on to say, on the first day shall be a solemn rest. And on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And, and so the first day would have been indicated by the blowing of the shofar. And we think about that like this, this low, loud, haunting call to rest. Like something that is out of the ordinary, that's drawing all of our attention. That the harvest has probably been coming in and we've been you know, putting everything in their bundles and we've been celebrating and all of a sudden on this day, this low haunting horn sounds indicating that it's time to rest. Do you ever feel that in your soul? Like, like almost a haunting sound that maybe is beneath everything else that it's desirous that you would rest and you would sit down and you would take a break and you would contemplate, maybe count the goodness of God around you or count the losses that you've endured, but like a call within you calling you to rest. Verse 40, it says, and then you shall take on the first day and so you rest. And like this is where all the kids would get super pumped up about the Feast of Booths. Listen to this description. You'll take on the first day fruit from splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And so it talks about how you build your booth. And so the Feast of Booths for seven days, everyone starts camping outside. Could you imagine how much kids would love this? All the neighbors outside building their booths, and it's just like, it's like, it's like tailgating. You're just trying to outdo the person next to you, like, oh man, look at my splendid fruit trees, you know? I mean, you're just trying to make it better. You know, like tailgating, like, you know, you, you show up and like, oh, Bill, you're cooking some hamburgers. That's cute. You know, I quit my job three weeks ago, and I'm like slow cooking an entire cow, you know? You know, and so you just keep adding to it. Like, you used to just listen to the radio, but now you have, like, a satellite truck. And you're like, I'm not even watching the game that we're tailgating. I'm watching all of them because I'm a Christian. You know what I mean? It just grows, and it grows, and it grows. And so for a week, like, like, like picture it. Everyone sleeping in these booths, in these tents, gathering around the fire, talking about what God did in the past and all that he provided in the present, looking to his miraculous work. Can you imagine what that builds in a, in a kid, in a family, in a community? Remember what God has done for us now. Remember what God did then. A whole week we set aside. And it's like we enter in it. Like the kids would love it. Like, look at verse 41. It says, you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. The kids would absolutely love it, and the parents would make chiropractic appointments for their coming injuries from sleeping on the ground. But they would love it, and then this is why. Verse 41 goes on. It is a statute forever throughout your generation. You shall celebrate it on the seventh month. You shall dwell in the booth for seven days. Why? All native Israelites shall dwell in the booth that... Your generation may know I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So a yearly reminder that everyone looked forward to, that everyone would come, that Asaph is saying, strike up the brand, band, draw us in. For a week we are going to look that God mightily saved us from a bitter enslavement. And that he miraculously walked us through the wilderness, providing all along the way, providing beyond what the land could give. And then he led us to the promised land. Blow the horn, 
enter into a day of rest. The burdens are laid aside and the rest is breathed in. Sleep as a family out in the open. Gather around the fire every night and talk of how God did and can you rescue his people. Talk about the slavery that they endured. Talk about the oppression that happened. And talk about how God is mighty. Remember his acts. Remember his miraculous provision. Remember the wilderness. The Lord brought abundant provision. The Lord supplied joy. And the Lord can still bring provision and supply joy. You know, there's actually a lot of things that we see. And so first, it's this joyful call to remember how God provided in the wilderness. But then, like, you could say it like this, remember the wilderness. It was in the wilderness that that we find the joy of the law of God. Like, we see that in verse 4, and then we see it again in verses 8 through 10. Like, the law of God is meant to bring joy, not, not despair. God is not trying to keep you from something that's good. God is trying to keep you for something that's good. And to really know that, God might have to take you into the wilderness. He might have to strip things away so you can see what you're actually hanging on to or what's actually holding into your heart. God took his people out of this bitter slavery in Egypt into the wilderness to teach them about himself, to teach them the law of God. And so look at verse 4. We see the words statute and rule. So it says, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule or law of the God of Jacob. And this is made even more clear down in verse 8. Like, just look down in verse 8. You're going to see that it starts off, he talks about commandment 1 and 2. So he mentions the commandments of God that we got at Mount Sinai, that we travel through the wilderness to get there. And so in the wilderness, we learn something about God. We learn something about us. We learn that we need something to govern us because there's something prone in us that is prone to wonder, is prone to envy, is prone to want what someone else has, and it can even end in murder to take it. And so it's the good statutes of God. You know, Psalms 19, listen to how it talks about the law of God. The law of God gets a bad rap. It's like, oh man, I, got, I can't do what I want. But listen to how it talks. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. There is a power in God's law to resurrect, to quench a thirst inside of your soul, to brighten your eyes, to make you alive. It says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It is something sure that can guide you through difficult seasons where you say, man, I don't know about this or I don't know about that, but I'm reading this. I know about this. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. All the different ways. We're saying the law, it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord, it can make you wise. The precepts of the Lord, it can bring joy to your heart. And then it says the commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so all of these things, like if you see need in your heart, you need to be revived. And the psalmist in Psalm 19 is saying, man, God's law can help with that. If you need to know what to do, the law of God can help you with that. If you need insight or joy in your heart, the law of God is intended to give that. And so we can be at times so convinced that the law of God is a burden, but this is saying it's a gift. It was worth going into the wilderness to find it, to structure our hearts, to give us insight into what God wants. It's a gift. It's meant for joy. And so we see, remember, God uses the wilderness to teach. He teaches that he provides for us in a way that the land can't or in the way that life right now can't. He teaches that his law is a gift and it can bring you joy. And then it teaches that it was the wilderness that God established that he saves through substitution. Look at verse 5. Like, it points back And it's kind of weird in the testimony. And so let's just walk through it. Verse 5, it says, He, that's God, made it a decree, or you could say a testimony, in Joseph. And so Joseph is another way to say the Hebrew people or Israel. And so it's saying how they got to Egypt. And so through Joseph, they got to Egypt. And so he, God, made it a decree or a testimony with his people that he went out over or against the land of Egypt. 
And so like the translation, God, he made a testimony, a decree in his people that he can save his people through a substitute. Like if you think about how God saved, we had all the plagues, but it ended with the final substitute. It was either your firstborn son or that to be covered in a substitute, the blood of a lamb. And so for 1,500 years, the kids' favorite holiday, we all get a tent. We all camp out. We try to outdo our neighbors with our cooler tent. You know, we have cable TV in our tent. And we sit around and we talk about all that God did, all that he provided, how he saved us. And then you would come to this. He saved the firstborn sons that deserved death through the blood of a lamb. For 1,500 years rehearsing this. Preparing our hearts to see Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so God calls the people joyfully, man, sing, get the sweet lyre out, not just the lame lyre, get it all out, let's sing a song, blow the shafar, it's a call to battle, a call to a new king, it's a low aching call, and it starts off with rest. There's actually nothing you can do to save yourself. There's actually nothing you can do that the death angel is not going to take your son except obey and the death of another would cover his blood. There's actually nothing you can do. God provided in the wilderness. God saved you from this bitter slavery. Remember. So remember the wilderness. Remember the joy that the law of God is intended to bring. Remember that God saves through a substitute. And so for 1,500 years, they set aside this week, coming right after the Day of Atonement, the holiest event, that there was a sacrifice made. And then they camped out, and they talked about all of those things. And, you know, they hurt when they woke up, or at least the parents did. And you start to complain, you're like, man, we don't have to do this for 40 years. Honey, you can make it one more week, you know. All these things would just keep growing and building with joyful anticipation. I think it's actually saying something the last three psalms that we've been in where the wilderness has been a theme. I think it's telling us that this life is far more wilderness-like than it is anything else. Even in seasons of plenty, we find that there's something aching in our heart that wants more. Even when, when things are blessed, we start to thought, man, I don't know. Something just doesn't quite feel right. And then when those blessings are pulled away and we might have been celebrating just like this, like we might have been looking like, man, God does great things in the wilderness. But then you enter the wilderness and you just freak out like, oh, man, God has dropped everything. Everything's lost. There's something about this life, even in the goodness of life, that doesn't seem to touch the ache that's in your soul and all of these things I think are pointing to it that God can save us from a bitter slavery he can he did and he will God can lead us into a wilderness and in there he can provide our need showing what's in our hand is insufficient and along the way we're learning that we can only be rescued by a substitutionary atonement there's nothing I can do to get rid of the slavery that's on top of me And so the wilderness, much of this life, is more wilderness-like than anything else. Where do you feel need or lack? Would you name it? Because we're going to get to verse 16, and it's going to say, open up your mouth. So first, the wilderness. Second, the rock. And I'm not talking about Dwayne. This is the rock. And so in the wilderness, there is a rock that can quench your thirst. And so verses 5 through 14, this goes just a little bit faster. We actually don't see the word rock until verse 15. But it's mentioned in verse 6 with the waters of Meribah. And so it's alluded to. And so let's just work our way there. So verse 5, the second half, it gets really weird where it says, I hear a language I had not known. And so if you remember, we just had kind of a hard translation where it says, you know, he, God, made a decree in Joseph when he went out over or against the land of Egypt, and then all of a sudden it changes, and the question is, who is this I? And I I think the I is is Asaph. I think he's, he's talking about all that God has done, 
And he's thinking like, oh man, that was incredible what God did. Remember how he went against Egypt. It ended with a substitutionary death by the blood of a lamb and it saved us. That's what expelled us out of the slavery. And then we crossed over the Red Sea. And then he says, man, I'm hearing a voice. I don't know if I've known it before. And so I I think, and you know, some of the commentaries gave some different options. This was one of them. But I think it's the first person, the voice of Asaph. But what he's hearing is he's hearing a different kind of voice come out of his soul, a more inspired voice. And so it's like Asaph is writing and inviting people um, to remember and celebrate the Feast of Booths. And suddenly he senses a change in the voice in his spirit. And if it's correct, it kind of goes like this. I, Asaph. I'm hearing a voice I hadn't known. It's new to me. And what is this voice saying? It's speaking. It's speaking. It's speaking. It's not spanking, y'all. It's speaking. It's speaking with authority. And then the eye changes to God. So look at verse 6. It says, I, God, relieved your shoulders of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I, God, delivered you. So look at those terms. I relieved, I freed, I rescued. I freed you from forced and burdensome layer, the toil that you had. And what I love is it doesn't just kind of give it abstract. It says, do you remember the feel of the baskets that were loaded with weight that you had to carry? It goes on and it's going to say, I freed you from heavy burdens. I relieved you to ease your heavy burdens so you could stand straight. And from your distress, I delivered you because I am a delivering God. Verse 7 keeps building. I, God, answered you in the secret place of thunder. And so I, I think this is pointing to two different places where he's like, you know, through uh, Forces of nature, I led you through the seas to Mount Sinai, and then at Mount Sinai, when I gave you the law of God, when I gave you my law, it was through a thundercloud that you heard the rumblings. And so I'm saying, remember, I am knowable. I can lead you. And then we get to the rock. Look at verse 7 again. It says, I, God, tested you at the waters of Meribah, Meribah, it's a rock structure. And so if you were in the desert and you just see sand everywhere, everywhere you look is sand, like a big rock, you know, a little rock structure would be kind of interesting. You're like, ah, I mean, I might as well check that out. And it's actually something that you would go to, like, you know, to shade you. It's like when you're driving and you see cows and it's hot, they're all crowded around the little tree that you wouldn't even call a tree in your yard. And they're just trying to get under this shelter. My kids on this last trip, they made up this game uh, called, I don't know what they call it, like cow herd. And so what you do is you drive and you're like, that's my cow herd. And everyone has like, oh man, you have five cow herds now. But then they can kill your cow herd with natural disasters. And so like, see that train? That train just ran over all your cows. They're like, man, my cows are dumb. (laughs) You know, it's on a track. And so the rules are somewhat ambiguous. And so it just makes for a lot of arguing. Like that wouldn't kill my cows. Oh, it killed your cows. And it just made me think of Oregon Trail, you know. I mean, you're going pretty good. You started off as the banker. The first night, you lose everything. Like, everything's stolen. And so you're like, why did I start off as the banker? And then you, you, you die from dysentery or your snake bit or you try to cross the Missouri River and you die. And, I mean, I never made it past St. Louis. I think you start in St. Louis. I'm not even sure. I mean... You know, you just die. And so they're playing, like, that's my cow. And you see the cows, they're all kind of huddled under the tree because they're like, we're going we're gonna to cook out here. We are in the slow cooker right now. See, the Rock of Meribah, you, you would get there and you'd, it would shield you from the winds or you might get in the shade. Or at night, when the desert gets really cold, the rock would retain the heat. But this rock did something way, way more. When it says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah, what we learned was at least twice Okay, water in <laughs> Okay, at least twice at the waters of Meribah, God provided flowing water from the rock. And so, when they complained, He provided water from the rock at least on two occasions. And then, First Corinthians ten four, it picks this up, and it says, "The rock in the desert at Meribah, that rock represented Christ, from whom." flowing waters flow from. And then Jesus takes on these titles where he says, I can give you living water. I am the living water you desire. 
And so in the wilderness, there's this rock. And I want to give you hope. The rock tells us that God will meet you in the wilderness. God led Abraham into the wilderness. And it was there that he made a covenant with him that was, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. And from his line, we get to Jesus, who now has saving power for all the nations. Jacob wrestled with God in the wilderness. He changed his name to Israel, and it's a picture for us. Like, we still wrestle with God, and God is going to subdue us, and it's for our good because he loves us. You know, God saved Joseph from a pit in the wilderness. Even when our brothers throw us down to leave us to die, God can rescue us and get us where we need to be, and he can change us along the way so that we were looking over our brothers, and they're afraid now that we have power, we're going to kill them because God has raised us up. We can say, you intended for harm, you did. Genesis 50, 20, you did. You tried to hurt me. You intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. He saved me in the wilderness so that what's happening now can happen, the saving of many. It was Moses who met with God in the wilderness, talked to him through a burning bush. And Moses wasn't even excited about that. Like, when he was like, okay, what am I going to tell the people? Like, I cannot tell the people, like, hey, man, the bush told me, like, we're going to be okay. Give me something more. But God met him in the wilderness. God's people received the law of God in the wilderness. Jesus defeated Satan's temptations in the wilderness. Jesus fed the multitude in the wilderness. And Jesus would often escape to the wilderness to meet with God the Father for strength. did so much in the wilderness what might God do for you in the wilderness what might you learn about him how might he meet you or do you think he's fresh out of provisions for the wilderness the rock tells us that God will meet us in the wilderness but he also we see how he meets us look at the emotion of how God meets Like the deep felt emotion. Look at verse 8. Hear, O my people, why I admonish you. The the word admonish, it can mean like turn back. And so it's saying like return back, O my people. But we see that language again like O my people. Then we see it down. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Like when you put O in front of someone's name, you are pushing your heart into what you're trying to communicate. You're saying, O Israel, I love you. Would you but listen to me? Would you but trust me? Would you but come back to me? O my people, O my children. He meets with emotion. He doesn't meet indifferent like, well, I mean, I guess you're here. He meets with emotion. I know this has been hard. I know this has been hurting. I know there's been something stripped away. But oh, if you would just remember what I've done for my people in the past and how I met them. Oh, if you would just remember how I've come through for you in the past. Oh, if you would just return to me. Verse 9. He doesn't just meet us with deep felt emotion. He meets us to show us his absolute exclusivity. Like look at this. He says, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. And so this is pointing back to the Ten Commandments. You know, Commandment 1 and Commandment 2. You know, one, gun. You never stand before a gun. So, you know, don't stand, put anything before God. Two, shoe. You know, little lady had... uh, you know, a lot of dolls, they all had one eyes, no idols. I don't know. It's just how you remember it. And so it's saying, put nothing before God. The process of the wilderness is stripping things away that you stand and you see what you held in your hands and you see that there's even more held in your heart. And so when things are stripped away in the wilderness, it's starting to show that there's an exclusivity that God is saying, look to me. Right now, I'm the only rock on the horizon. And then verse 10, he meets us to rescue and satisfy us. And look at the picture again. It says, I am the Lord your God 
I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then listen to this, open wide and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide and I will satisfy. And so it says that we, are ha- we have bondages that we may not even know about. We have shackles that we can't shake. But God brought his people into the wilderness to save them. And you know, so many times we, we read it and we're like, yeah, of course. And then we, we hit the wilderness and we're like, oh my gosh, everything's wrong. And listen to how this builds. Verse 11, it says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. But my people would not listen to my voice. My people would not submit to me. In the moment of conviction, we tell ourselves crazy things. Like like God is leaning on your heart to change something about your life or to change the way you think about something, to either like break something down or to build something up. And we start to think like, oh man, I'll do that later. Like, and like, like if I don't have the faith to do it now, what makes me think I'll even want to change later? If it's his kindness that brings me to repentance, if he's isolated things to put one thing before me, and I'm like, man, I don't know. I kind of wonder what's behind it. Like what makes me think that something might not die in me now that makes it harder to do it later? What makes me think this might not be the final hardening? Saying later is saying no. So that builds up. They didn't listen. Verse 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Like the punishment was giving them what they wanted. This is God just stepping back and saying, okay, you can have it your way. You can do what you think is best. Okay, this is a stepping back. This is what we see in in Romans 1 where there's this giving and there's this taking and just doing what we want and God just steps back a little bit more and steps back a little bit more. And oftentimes it is not God smiting. God does not have to step out and be like, oh, I'm going to get you. God just says, gosh, if you follow your own heart, this is where you'll end up. And I think the best picture of hell is God stepping back for the last time to say, you can have what you want. If you don't want me, you don't have to have me. And so verse 13, we see that language again. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. Listen to this promise. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. The wilderness. Much of this life is more wilderness-like than anything else. The rock. In the wilderness, there is a rock that can quench your thirst. And in that rock is honey. In the wilderness, there is a rock. And in that rock is honey. You know, this language actually comes from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, where he says, honey came from the rock. And so look at verse 15. It says, those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. Like, that, it, it sounds so weird. Like, it, it commentaries, I got a D in Hebrew, so I don't know, but commentaries like, man, this is really hard to translate. I'm like, I found it all hard to translate. Um, But like, those who hate the Lord would cringe. That word cringe, it kind of means disappoint, dissipate, fail, or grow lean. So those who hate the Lord grow lean toward him. That means they get thinner. They hunger less for him. They are more easily satisfied with other things and their appetite for God is failing. And so those who hate the Lord grow lean toward him. They dissipate. And then it says, and their fate will last forever. It's a trajectory that I don't want the things of the Lord. I reject the things of the Lord. And God says, I'll give you what you want. And then the things of the Lord, I lose a taste for them just a little bit more and a little bit more. But the solution is stop at the rock. Like if you're growing lean toward the things of the Lord, if your appetite continues to grow for something else or someone else, wherever you are on the scale, verse 16 has this personal invitation for you. But God, 
would feed you with the finest wheat and with honey from the rock, he would satisfy you. See, if if you're in the wilderness, it's saying go to the rock and wait. Find him. And if 1 Corinthians 10 is true, the rock always represented Jesus. And so in Jesus, there is honey. There is something sweet. And when you drink and take in something sweet, you become sweet yourself. Take him in. He is sweet. And taking him in will change you and make you sweet like him. This life is far more wilderness than it is anything else. But in the wilderness that you face, there's a rock. Jesus God has always met with his people in the wilderness. Jesus will meet you in the wilderness. And in Jesus, there is something that your soul is longing for. And when the psalmist says, honey, he is saying, when Asaph says that, he is saying the sweetest thing he can think of. And then we have like a Psalms 34 that says this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I I just ask, man, if we find ourselves in the wilderness, that we would see this moment as a coming to Jesus, a coming to the rock, and just saying, I am dry, I am thirsty, and I need you. And if your scripture is true, it says that there is honey in you, and I know that that means I have to wait before you set it before me, but I am waiting And Lord, the picture is, it's kind of a picture of communion that we come before one thing in front of us and it points us to a deep reservoir of life that was done for us, that the body of Jesus was broken for us, the blood of Jesus was spilt for us, and so from Jesus comes the sweetness that can save us. It's the sweetness of God to forgive us. And so Lord, I pray that you would just be there and Lord, if we are in a wilderness season that, Lord, you would quickly bring hope that from your words we'd find something that secures us and hangs on to it. And in the moment, we would also find community of other people traveling in the wilderness and we would encourage one another to sit at the rock and to wait because living waters will come from the rock. And so wherever you are, I mean, we invite you to take communion with us. There will be instructions on the screen on how we take communion We invite you to that, or we invite you that there be people behind the black curtains to pray with you. But wherever you are, wherever God would move you, and we ask you to respond to him. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.